Hello, everyone. Welcome to today's episode of our 7investing podcast. I'm 7investing founder and CEO, Simon Erickson, and we've heard a lot of headlines in technology in recent years, whether it be cloud computing or artificial intelligence or machine learning or whatever else it might be. Uh, there's a lot of buzzwords that are floating around out there. And today I'm very excited to welcome a technical expert to help us drill down into a lot of those trends that are developing. My guest is Ben Book. He's the co-founder and CEO of GigaOM out in California. Ben, thanks very much for joining 7investing for our podcast here this afternoon. Of course, Simon. Thanks for having me. Ben, let's start at the 10,000-foot level. We hear a lot about the digital transformation. I know that at GigaOM, uh, you are not only advising executives about innovative technologies that are out there, but also helping them implement it into their own organizations as well. What are your overall thoughts about this phrase, digital transformation? What does it really mean to you? Yeah, digital transformation has been a big buzzword, to your point. It's been around for quite a while. Uh, I think most enterprises have come up with different definitions of what that really means to their business. But at the core of what it means, it means to modernize their business, to build new digital products and services that support their revenue and their customers. And customers have tried, enterprises have tried to do this over the past number of years. Some of them have succeeded, some of them have failed. But at the root of it, the purpose of doing digital transformation is really around boards and CEOs wanting to be software companies and want to be valued as software companies. If you look at companies like Snowflake, like Zoom, you know, these, these unicorns that are coming out of Silicon Valley, you know, they're trading at really high multiples. And even the, the tech companies are tra trading high multiples. So boards and CEOs want to have parts of their business have higher multiples and, and, you know, and also have their core business start to trend to be a digital business. So, you know, it, it's always been a challenge for a company who's a legacy company to figure out how, the, how do you work in the new economy, the digital economy. And some companies like Disney have done a good job preparing for that, like, you know, their streaming service. Uh, other companies have, have prepared for that, uh, like Henkel, for example, they've modernized their data infrastructure. A lot of them did it prior COVID. And those ones, you know, picked a good time to, to be successful. <laughs> a lot of other ones are still trying to figure out what that means to them. And I think at the core of it, again, it's just digital services and modernization. And it's, it's challenging for companies who don't grow up in that culture, right? I mean, you know, if you grew up in Silicon Valley, it's a different culture than growing up in, in the finance ecosystem and industry in New York versus, you know, Texas with oil and gas. So it means something different to every industry and every enterprise. But at the core of it, it's really about valuation and, and driving growth for these companies. And so, you know, boards and CEOs want their IT teams, want their product teams, want their marketers, want their HR people thinking about how can you apply technology to your business so that we can, one, either be valued as a software company and get a really good valuation or use technology for things like automation to be able to drive, you know, cut, cutting costs and things like that. So, uh, again, it's, it's a big buzzword, to your point. It means something different to everybody. And, and lots of companies have succeeded and a lot of them have failed. Sure. And if we're in a nine inning ball game in American enterprises doing the digital transformation, where the ninth inning, everybody's converted everything over the cloud, everything's gone digital exactly how they wanted it to. And one is they're just getting started. Where are we? Are we in the third inning? Are we in the sixth inning? Where do you think we are in America? That is a good question. That's a good question. So I think most enterprises are in the second or third inning. And, uh, you know, the starters thrown about 70 pitches or so. <laughs> and uh, you know they're, they're hitting the the second the second round or third round of, of batters, and they're trying to change it up. They're trying to switch it up. They're trying to change the, the 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 pitch that they're throwing, and they're still experimenting, right? I think that's a big thing that they're experimenting, and they're still trying to figure out as as new technology comes out, like blockchain, like security, like it, it is a constant 
evaluation, uh, you know, constant evolution and we'll never, I think, get to the ninth inning, uh, to be honest, yeah. because it's, it's a constant evolution. So the companies who are, you know, third or fourth inning, I think they're, they're moving along. There's some who are like the sixth inning and seventh inning and they'll always be there. Uh, but it'll be pretty impossible for everyone to always be on trend because these, you know, if, if you're looking at a large enterprise, there's just so many moving pieces and then you have the political and government, you know, compliance issues that they have to go through, which slow them down too. Uh, so there's, there's, there's more than just technology that enterprises have to have to fare with. Fair enough. Okay. Second or third inning in, in the digital transformation. Sounds like a great time to go get a hot dog and a $15 beer from the ballpark. Uh, let's yeah. shift gears a little bit here, Ben, you know, you had mentioned zoom and snowflake just now, two companies that have been rewarded by very high valuations by the market. Uh, they're also very focused on the cloud and we've seen a lot of software as a service companies, infrastructure as a, as a service companies, platform as a service. Everybody seems to be moving workloads and data over to Amazon. Of course, Snowflake is allowing for multi-cloud uh, strategies for companies that are embracing that. But we're also hearing about other kind of shoots from this as well, right? Edge computing is kind of a big deal where a lot of people are trying to say, hey, don't send everything out to the centralized cloud. You can do this closer to where your users are. Where do you think we stand with cloud computing right now? Is, is, have we gone through phase 1.0 of the cloud and we're starting to see some new interesting things come out of this? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, in terms of cloud, uh, you know, there's been a big shift for enterprises to want to leverage the cloud specifically with, you know, issues like COVID where companies need to, more, move, need to be more agile. But essentially enterprises just want to get out of the business of running IT, right? So they want to be able to move something from on-premise in their own data center, get out of the data center business and really allow their people to, you know, do what people do best, which is innovate and, you know, build new services instead of managing a service. So that's the big thing that, you know, most companies want to do when they move to the cloud. And then they want to think, okay, now we're in the cloud. How do we access higher level services like chatbots, like DevOps, like container services to make things more efficient. So a lot of companies have tried to do this lift and shift thing. The, the problem with that is that most enterprises aren't familiar with cloud and they don't, they don't understand that it actually is more complex to have a cloud environment sometimes than having something on-premise. And then two, they typically don't have the talent to manage a lot of that when it moves to the cloud. And, and there's, a, uh, there's an idea that it's easier to manage things when it moves to the cloud. It's actually harder in, in many cases. So now everyone's trying, just like you said, the, the third inning, fourth inning, seventh inning, ninth inning, where are we with cloud? We're kind of in the third or fourth inning too. Companies have moved to the cloud. They've had a good experience or they've had a bad experience and moved back on-prem or they moved to the cloud. Now they said, okay, let's look at edge and let's think about some of the use cases we want to do around edge. Um, and then just, but just back to the, the point about Snowflake and Zoom, you know, it's so much easier to innovate and it's so much easier to start a company using cloud, right? You don't have to have a data center to build a digital service. And that's a huge, huge opportunity for most companies. And that's why we're seeing an explosion of startups because you can just spin something up in Amazon, Google, Microsoft, and you can be off and running and you can build an MVP and then go raise a bunch of money and then, you know, be a, a real player. You know, we worked with Snowflake back in 2015 when they came out of Stealth and we worked with them really closely for about two or three years before any of the other research companies caught up with them. And, you know, they just, you know, pretty much took the entire market by storm because they had the best easy to use technology and everybody wanted to use it. And nobody was close to them because the legacy companies were two or three years behind them. And, and it took them two or three years to catch up. And now I think it's getting interesting for Snowflake because now they have to compete with the legacy providers. But it just shows that a company can come out of nowhere and build a, you know, multi-billion dollar company with hundreds of millions of dollars in revenue, you could not do that before cloud. You'd have to build a data center, you have to get a network, you'd have to build the security, 
And so cloud has really leveled the playing field for innovators and people that want to start new companies. Um, and then for enterprises too, it allows them to be more agile, allows them to be more flexible, allows them to try new things and, and, and know that not everything is going to succeed and not have to put a huge investment into it. So it's really just a cre essentially created that ability to be agile, ability to free up your people from um, you know, managing a storage instance to using that resource to you know, help you build the next generation product. Uh, and that's really what most CIOs, what most CEOs want, want their IT team to do. You know, don't be the janitor of your data center anymore. You know, use, use technology for business advantage. So again, we can get that software valuation, right? <laughs> do, do, yes, very true. Do, do you see that there's a preference for any of the cloud service providers and the ecosystems that they have? I mean, Amazon was obviously one of the first to really develop this space, but are, are customers or large enterprises preferring one of those over the others? Yeah, I think most enterprises have a large service provider that they work with. And that is typically an Oracle, a Microsoft, an IBM, an Amazon. And that depends on the legacy that they have with those companies. So, you know, you have the traditional Oracles, IBMs, the Microsofts, you know, they have a customer base that will likely stick with them uh, through this transition. And, uh, and then you have the new players like Amazon and, and, and Google that are coming in who are, you know, attacking the market to look for new customers. Amazon's done an amazing job building new services and kind of going after a market that was untapped before. So just like we just talked about Snowflake, you know, Amazon essentially said, hey, we're going to go after the non-huge enterprises because there's actually more of those in the world than there are large enterprises. And, you know, they did a really good job with that. They also, of course, you know, were able to get a lot of the startups to use them. So, and now they're trying to get back into the enterprise game. So they're trying to go back backwards to the legacy companies who are using Oracle, IBM, and Microsoft. Uh, and, and Google is looking for new customers, new workloads. I think they're not as, uh, you know, enterprise ready as, as Amazon and Microsoft. Um, and they're still like very focused on a couple of specific niches that they want to win, like AI, for example. They do a lot of investment there, or Kubernetes, for example. Um, and, and Microsoft is the only company who bridges those gaps. Microsoft has a huge ecosystem. They have a huge partner ecosystem that, that helps sell them. They work with large enterprises, they work with mid markets, and they're also capturing new workloads. So you have kind of the, the Amazon and the Googles who are still trying to, to get back into that enterprise world. You have the, the, the legacy companies trying to fight off Amazon and Google and Microsoft. And you kind of have Microsoft sitting in the middle who can play both of those because they have a legacy customer base and they're still you know, innovating, uh, you know, not, not always at the pace that Amazon is. I think Amazon certainly is innovating faster than Microsoft in many cases, but Microsoft's right behind and that's always been their strategy and that's allowed them to, to always be uh, a really successful company in all these spaces. Yeah, so those existing relationships that they have are in fact sticky with the enterprise, but there's also some advantages to being cloud native like you mentioned earlier. Yep, yep, exactly. Yeah, so I think, you know, the, the Amazon is still going to be, you know, number one, Microsoft, number two, Google, number three, you know, Oracle and IBM will just stick around with their customers. They're just not spending this, the amount that they need to spend. They're not innovating. And to be honest, they just don't have the culture that the, a lot of these other cloud companies have in terms of the speed that they move. If you look at the way that Amazon and Microsoft, Google, they innovate and they, they, they constantly are delivering new services and the way that their teams move, they just move at, at a much faster pace than IBM and Oracle um, because that's also what their customers are asking for, you know? So it, it's, it's really a customer need and as well as a staying on top of the market. 
Then another topic that's gotten a lot of attention in recent years is artificial intelligence, which we're kind of progressing from that being the buzzword to machine learning being the buzzword, right. which is a little that's bit right. deeper into the trenches. Yep. But you know, we, as we've seen, you can do some really neat things with this, train your data centers to, to label data. We've seen GPUs explode in popularity for parallel computing. We've, you know, we've seen in self-driving cars, image recognition, video rendering, things like this. But in terms of the enterprise, it seems like maybe artificial intelligence is still early in the innings of this ballgame. Uh, what are you seeing enterprises really having an interest in artificial intelligence to accomplish for them? Yeah, mo the, what we see with most enterprises, this, they do a bunch of science projects across different applications. Uh, typically, it's an application that's core to their business. So, for example, uh, we worked with uh, TransLink, which is a transit authority in Vancouver. They picked an application that allows people to track, you know, wh when the bus is going to come. Um, and so, you know, that's one example. Johnson Johnson uses it for their HVAC data. Uh, we, we just did a case study on a hospital ORs and how they're using computer vision to be able to track uh, surgeries. So, you know, picking an application and then trying to figure out how you can essentially apply automation to that problem. Uh, AI right now in the way machine learning is set up is really just to take in a lot of data, make decisions on that data and then output some data. Uh, it's, it's still not, you know, this general AI thing that a lot of people talk about. Um, and so, you know, most enterprises are going to do a couple of science projects. They get a couple wins under their belt. And then again, they'll productionalize it. And then they'll go to the next application and they'll go to the next application. And, you know, I think the interesting thing about AI and, and ML is that most enterprises know that it's going to make an impact for their business. There are verticals that have been doing this for a long time, like finance, right? Finance has been doing this. Insurance has been doing this. I think some of the, the newer... Uh, the newer entry levels for AI and ML across industries are things like uh, healthcare and the traditional, we'll call them um, slower moving industries because of governmental regulation or other, you know, larger, larger issues. You know, retail uh, is, is now trying to move to e-commerce. There's a lot of AI and ML in, in, in the way that you personalize things. Um, so, you know, the, there's going to be a huge mainstream adoption of AI. I think it started about a year ago. And we're going to continue to see that, uh, you know, we, we did an AI event about five years ago and it was still very nascent. People were still trying to figure out what it meant. Now everyone's done a couple of projects and they kind of have a feel for what it's going to do. And then the question is, how do you operationalize it, you know, using data tools and data scientists. But again, you know, people want to, you know, have the infrastructure and have the, the technology do the automation around it. So you don't have to have the data scientists to do it. There's not enough data scientists in the world. There's not enough cloud engineers in the world. There's not enough data engineers. So these cloud companies, these software companies are providing that kind of layer to manage the, um, the, the, the messiness of all of these different applications uh, once you stand it up. So, um, you know, if, if you look at the web scale companies like Netflix and Twitter, you know, they just use open source stuff uh, and, and no enterprise could, could have a team of 200 open source engineers to build something for their, you know, application for retail financial services companies would invest in that stuff because they have the people and the resources so now we're kind of hitting the mainstream that that can purchase technology in a box as we like to call it you know the mainstream likes to purchase things in a box they don't want to like tweak with it and hire a bunch of really high high profile engineers to to build it out so i think that's one thing we're seeing kind of at the implementation layer but also higher level up for the um, the enterprises who are seeing business value, and some business value is like four percent, a five percent ROI. Sometimes you can see a really dramatic ROI, 25 30 percent for ML and AI, and that's really when CEOs get excited about that stuff.
And it sounds like a lot of those enterprises are learning more about how they can use AI, right? It was for standard functions, like you mentioned, finance, things like that. But now they're realizing, hey, we've got some unique data. Maybe these science projects should actually be implemented on a commercial scale. Correct. Yep, exactly. Yeah, very interesting. Uh, is, there any, is there any other bottlenecks? I mean, you said there was a, kind of a shortage of data scientists and a shortage of, of people that can do this work and probably just an overall education of, of what AI can do. Is there any other bottlenecks holding this up on how the enterprise is, is deploying AI today? Yeah, a big one is data. A lot of enterprises have lots of data and it's everywhere and it's messy. Sometimes they don't know where the data is. <laughs> so just wrangling the data has been the first step. Uh, so essentially, while everyone's been working on their little science projects for AI, they've also been trying to get their data in order and figure out how they can get their data in order so that they can take advantage of AI. Again, enterprises are still in the second or third inning of that. Uh, they might be in the fifth or sixth inning of building AI workloads and, and really doing their science project. But to be able to productionalize it and do it at scale, you have to have the data infrastructure, which is why these companies like Snowflake and you know other companies in the data space are really growing really rapidly because customers need to put the data in somewhere that they can access it, right? And so, and in a lot of cases, you want it to be in a structured format. So uh, you want to put it in a database, you want to put it in a data warehouse, and you need to have it in a place that is accessible and usable. Um, you also have data lake companies and, and data lake uh, like Cloudera, like you know Teradata, Microsoft, all of these companies and specifically in healthcare, you're seeing a lot of this, a lot of the data is trapped in PDFs. It's trapped in a doctor's note, right? I mean, that's a great example. It's not always just trapped in a database somewhere underneath someone's desk. It's actually trapped in like something that's unstructured. So the big initiative now is how do we get the data out of a PDF? How do we get it out of, out of an EMR? Once we can get it out of there, then we can do something with it. But because you know a lot of these industries are still very paper-based, um, you know, even finance, uh, it's really hard to, to productionalize that data. So that's what I'm excited about. You know, healthcare, for example, um, healthcare for a long time has been very siloed and it's really hard to get all of the different players, the pharmaceutical companies, the providers, the insurance companies all to work together. Um, but now we're starting to see that, you know, these companies are starting to, to, to digitalize uh, their assets um, pharmaceutical companies, insurance companies have been a little bit better than healthcare systems because their, their business is built on the data. Uh, but once healthcare systems can really start to bring that data to life, that's where it's going to get exciting. Um, and I think a lot of enterprises are there. And then even below enterprises, a lot of mid-market companies want to do this and they weren't able to do it before because they weren't able to access this type of technology. Now they're able to access it because of cloud services. So, you know, it's a great, another example, like, you know, small, medium businesses, startup can access cloud services, mid-market companies can buy this thing out of the box. They don't have to have a bunch of open source engineers or data scientists to manage it. They can play with it and it's low code, no code. You probably heard that buzzword too. Oh, yeah. uh, you know, you, you, using things, you know, essentially allowing anybody who can click a button and, and knows what they, what their business needs can now use technology. And that wasn't the case five or six years ago. And, and that's why, you know, we're seeing a huge adoption, not just in the enterprise, but now mid-market and SMB to really be able to use technology. Um, and, you know, companies like Twilio, right? They, they went after the mid-market, just like Amazon did. They're a billion-dollar company. Um, the mid-market is a huge, huge market. Um, enterprise is, is, is great, and everyone is used to, you know, these IT companies selling into enterprise. But the mid-market is pretty big, and it, it's a little bit bigger than enterprise, if you look at the whole market. So that's, that's what's interesting to see is how, 
how not just the enterprise leverages technology, but the mid-market because now it's accessible via the cloud. Yeah. So it's not just a science project anymore with the largest companies that can afford teams of data scientists. It's actually useful for a smaller company to be able to harness AI now. Yeah. Yeah. A company who's 10 people, 20 people, 30 people, uh, you know, if, if as long as you have the data, you can plug your data in and the AI will take care of it uh, because of all the work that Microsoft and Amazon and Google has done to find that data and train, train against their own models. So that's where you get to leverage these super huge hyperscalers at scale. IBM and Oracle and those other companies, you know, still haven't been able to get to that scale because they're still focused on, you know, the enterprise and the specific enterprise help and selling consulting service to the to them. They haven't gotten to the scale that that Microsoft and Amazon and and Google have, and and that's what's going to allow them to succeed. In again, not just the enterprise but the mid market. Yeah, that's a great point, Ben. One perspective I'll add to that too that I think is is also a bottleneck for a lot of this right now is there's a huge supply shortage right now of chips of high performance chips that are needed for these AI workloads, right? It's not so simple that you can just go ahead and run this on any kind of processor you want. And we've kind of seen this transition for several years now, CPUs to GPUs, because they could run things in parallel, which is much more efficient for AI accelerators for doing these workflows, work, uh, workflows are really difficult. But now we're starting to see even some more exotic chips, right? Like ASICs, or starting to see FPGAs, stuff like this that wasn't getting a whole lot of attention. It was just more for people that were tinkering that want to do all this engineering and play with these things. Now they're actually deploying them at scale. And it's, it's really interesting to see the shortage of the foundries, you know, the global foundries and the Taiwan semiconductors and these kind of players of the world, how backed up they are from demand of companies that are saying, hey, we want to use AI. Uh, this requires a boatload of processing to do it. And we need to get a little bit smarter than just the typical processors we've used. Yeah. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, we've been covering AI in, in data centers for about 12 years now. And, you know, the, the, the challenge with data centers and the chip companies is it requires a lot of investment, right? Just like with the Googles, the Microsofts, Amazons, we just talked about, you got to build data centers, multi-billion dollar investments. And, you know, there's only a small number of companies who can, you know, make that type of investment, like an in Intel, for example. Uh, and then you have, you know, companies like NVIDIA who are building the playbook or the, the blueprint for uh, the chip, but they don't actually don't manufacture it. And then that's up to the manufacturer or the engineer to do it. And then you have the companies like Arm, uh, who's very similar to NVIDIA, um, where they, you know, essentially give you the blueprint. So, you know, I think that the interesting thing in our industry is, you know, what are companies doing with chips? Yeah, they're, they're buying GPUs and they're trying to get more access to, to those things for AI. But I think the really interesting thing is, you know, how we're, we're applying chips and semiconductors to IoT. IoT is something that we've talked about for a long time. And just like with cloud, I think we kind of hit that mainstream about a year or two ago. Uh, and also with AI, everyone wants to apply a chip to something, right? A chip to your car, a chip to your, your coffee mug. I have this coffee mug here. Um, now, I think I'm now a believer in IoT because I spent $150 on this coffee mug that keeps my coffee hot for eight hours. Love right? it. So, I want so, one. <laughs> so I, I, can, I can control it with my phone. I can control the, the, the temperature. I think it's, it, you know, everyone really wants to have that kind of you know, uh, digital experience with everything. Right. And that goes back to the digital transformation conversation we we're having, too. So I think, you know, the, the the things that will be prioritized by a lot of these chip companies and, and getting through the supply chain challenge will be, you know, the GPUs and and all of these things for the traditional things. I think the the, the big need is, hey, for IoT, we need like, you know, a, a, a trillion semiconductors. Like there's no way that no, no matter what investment you make, we're going to build build enough capacity. So. Uh, it might slow down the IoT ecosystem a little bit, um, 
but I think we'll get through it. It's just going to take a little investment. It's going to take three or five years to get through it. It's, it's always takes longer than we expect. Um, and then the companies who, who, who are the largest, like the Intels and Apples, you know, they'll help us get through it. And then the long tail will be uh, the, the, the smaller companies who then, you know, are leveraging those ecosystems. So uh, it, it's definitely going to be some very short-term pain for companies like auto, automobile companies uh, who don't have that infrastructure, who don't have the partners to build that because they haven't built a partner ecosystem and they don't have the, the manufacturing capacity either. Um, so yeah, it, it'll certainly certainly be interesting, but I think IoT will, will probably take the biggest, biggest hit. Great point. Um, speaking of things that tend to take a little longer than you expect to get up and running, let, let's double click on healthcare. You mentioned that so much of this is in doctor records and PDFs and kind of, it's been slow to adopt technology. Uh, we tried a couple of years ago to do a nudge with electronic health records and, you know, diff different regulations that tried to push a lot of this paper patient records to, uh, to digital ways of doing this. And then we've seen kind of Google and, um, and now Apple really trying to figure out healthcare because it's a $4 trillion market in America. What's your thoughts on the biggest opportunities for healthcare that are actually implementable and how does the relationship between hospitals and patient privacy and all of the other complexities of healthcare factor into this? Yeah, so I started my career in healthcare consulting, working with hospital systems and working with insurance companies. So I got firsthand experience about why those two parties don't like working together <laughs> and, 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 and really the financial implications of that. Uh, you know, really with healthcare, it's, it's hard because you have all of these different parties and they're all not working under the same incentive plans to your point. So you have healthcare systems who, you know, want to control the data, you know, they want to provide better outcomes, but at the same time, you know, they, they want to control everything. And then you have the doctors working in the facilities who, again, don't work for the, for the facility. Then you have the insurance company, the pharmaceutical company. So, you know, the biggest challenge with this is, you know, how do you get everyone to share data um, so that you can take better action on the data, you can have better patient outcomes. So I think we've seen, you know, to your point with some of the, the hospital initiatives over like the last five to 10 years, you know, pushing this ecosystem to consolidate a little bit so that you can get more sharing of information. That didn't actually happen. Uh, you, all you did was get consolidation and then these companies just got bigger and it got harder for individual practices to, to operate because then they didn't have as much leverage with the, the big insurance companies, et cetera. But now we have more centralization with these different parties. So the question is, you know, how do we still incentivize these parties to work together? At the end of the day, like hospitals want to decrease costs. Insurance companies want to decrease costs. They're on the same, they're on the same initiative there. Uh, so I think if, if we can get these two parties to, to be incentivized, again, this is very difficult and it'll probably still take a long time. But if you can get those two parties to work together to share the data that, again, is locked in all of these different you know, uh, you know, systems, then you can start to get it to feed into the IoT devices, right? You can get it to feed into the, the, the devices that the patient needs. You can get it to, um, to track what's happening in the OR and give the insurance companies access to that information so that they can help the health hospital system make better decisions in, in terms of how they do their care and how they do their claims. So, you know, it's still a very siloed ecosystem. And, you know, the, the biggest opportunity is data and AI. And right now it's just within those ecosystems. Hospitals are using it for things like surgeries to make sure surgeries go better. Um, you know, they're also using it to manage uh, the data associated with customers or patients. Uh, and then healthcare and then pharmaceutical and, and insurance companies are doing a really good job 
using AI so that they could process claims faster and things like that. But I, I don't see a huge impact on the sharing of data uh, still yet. Uh, I think I think we still have a, a far way to go on that. It's still siloed. That's what you're saying, Ben. You're using it for certain applications, but it's not really sharing all healthcare data everywhere. Correct. Yep. So you can have an individual patient outcome and you can have a great outcome, but there's nothing that the insurance company is able to, to leverage from that and learn from that. And I think a lot of what in the technology ecosystem here in California, in Silicon Valley, it's all about learning and it's all about trying new things. And it's hard to, to innovate when you're not sharing and you're not collaborating. So um, I think, you know, we'll, we'll see new models come up like a hospital system work having its own insurance company. That's interesting because then they can share the data and they can actually be more effective and efficient. Um, so I think, you know, we certainly have a long way to go, but I'm, I'm excited about the opportunity with IoT devices in healthcare. I'm excited about using AI on automation and surgeries for better patient outcomes. So there's always like little use cases everywhere, but no, nothing huge and, 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 you know, really mega, mega trend for the industry uh, currently. Yeah, and speaking about San Francisco, do you do you think that Google or Apple is making more progress in healthcare today? So, you know, I think Apple has a leg up because of the way that they use data and the way that they consume data and the way that they they access with consumers. Uh, you know, Google, of, of course, has Android and they have a lot of d devices and platforms in the field. But the way that you know Google does things, you know, I don't see them making a long-term bet on healthcare and really enabling it. Um, they have a cloud, which is great. They have, you know, an initiative to go after healthcare, but, you know, I think it's really going to come back to the patient and what the patient wants to give up. And I think Apple has a, has a leg up with them on that. So we'll see how that, how that progresses. I know Google's tried a lot of things over the years. Um, so, you know, I think, uh, I think Apple will, will probably do a little bit better in that game in the short term. I think if Google keeps investing and again, it's about an ecosystem and a partnership. So if, if Google can build partnerships with the healthcare systems, with the uh, providers, the problem is I don't think a lot of customers uh, trust Google. So, you know, and patients trust Google and the consumer trust Google. So, you know, I think they've kind of fallen into the, the same issue that, that Facebook has come up with, uh, with, with trust. And I think Apple has that trust. So if, if, if Apple can exploit the trust and, and, and work with customers to get the data that they need, then they can provide you know, additional services on top of it. So they, they each have their own opportunities, but each have their own challenges for sure. I certainly agree, Ben. You know, and you saw that a couple of years ago when, when Google was kind of beta testing this with Nightingale, they got embedded with some patient data and there was just kind of this backlash of we don't want Google to have access to all of this. And Apple certainly seems to be uh, controlling the narrative of, of privacy paramount. I think that, you know, as we're kind of shifting to devices and consumer facing healthcare, they certainly seem to be in the driver's seat for that. one. Yeah. Yeah. Google should, should buy a company, invest in a company that's not called Google to do healthcare. And then <laughs> yeah, I think exactly. they, 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 they might be, they might, they might get, get a couple of things from that. <laughs> yeah. Fair enough. Uh, ben, last question for you. You know, our audience at Seven Investing is, is mostly individual investors that really want to get, you know, a, a, a first-hand view of the trends that you look at every day. You know, you're deploying a lot of these technologies. We hit on several of them today, but there's a lot we haven't talked about yet, whether it's quantum computing or blockchains or any of the other cool stuff that's out there. Is there anything else that you're looking at right now that you think is particularly attractive and uh, bonus gold star points if it's not something that's already in the headlines that everyone else is talking about? <laughs> yeah, fair enough. 
Fair enough. Well, quantum computing is certainly interesting. It's, it's a long way away from, uh, we're like in the, the first, the second pitch of the first inning or something <laughs> yeah. like that, right back to your analogy. Uh, it's certainly interesting, but we're a long ways off from that. I think, uh, you know, things like, uh, you know, j- just everything in security right now is just exploding. The reason why it's exploding is because for a long time, enterprises, mid-market SMB, again, haven't been able to access the things that they need, or they didn't want to spend the money on it. And now they have to spend the money on it uh, because everyone is getting breached. Everyone's getting malware. Everyone is getting hit from every direction uh, because again, they're building these digital services. So everything in security is super hot. And, you know, when you work with an enterprise, you know, they don't always need a really good reason to buy security. Uh, it's just a mandate or like, we need to have this thing. So every, everything else in technology, it's what's the ROI, what's the TCO, you know, how is this going to help me get time to value security? It's like, yeah, it's, it's binary. And it used to be, well, we don't really need it. It's a zero. Now it's like, we kind of need everything and uh, let's buy it all. So, uh, you know, that, that's why every technology company, even a lot of the companies like Datadog and, you know, these, these kind of newer companies who, who are coming from different spaces is all jumping into the security bandwagon. Uh, and there's good reason for that. One, because customers need it. And two, because they can make a lot more money and have a much larger target addressable market. So that's where we're seeing an explosion of in, in the security space. We're investing a lot in security. Uh, the challenge is also too, there's not a lot, of, there's not enough talent in security, right? So just like with the data space, the cloud space, there just is not enough talent to be able to support the innovation need that we have there. Um, so we're really excited about security and excited about how enterprises are going to attack it and again be more proactive than reactive i think everyone has been reactive in security for a long time again oh we don't really need that thing we'll, we'll deal with it if you know we have a problem now everyone knows how many problems they can have and how it's going to really disrupt their business and you know affect their job to get fired for example mm-hmm. so everyone is a lot more hypersensitive to it um, so they're trying to you know in our industry we say shift left essentially like put the security in the design versus like you know, handle the problem, uh, you know, later down the line. Uh, so solve the problem so you don't have the problem later, right? Um, so the, a lot of the companies that we we track are, for example, in the DevOps space and the cloud space are essentially providing that kind of shift left or that, um, that ability to be more proactive uh, than reactive. Um, in terms of other types of technologies that we're looking at, you know, we covered data, we covered AI, we covered edge, we covered uh, cloud. Um, you know, I think that this idea around low code, no code, or the ability to use applications and build applications without having to be an engineer. Again, there aren't enough engineers in the world. Uh, you have services now that can give you access to, to data and be able to manage data. So, you know, just up leveling the ability to use a technology without having to be a technologist is a huge deal. So anyone who's providing a, a service like that. Um, and again, Snowflake's a great example. Snowflake built a data warehouse that anyone can use. And that's why they've gotten so much traction early on because all the other data warehouses were very hard to use and you had to be a DBA or an expert to use. Uh, Google, for example, is really good about this. They, all of their products are so well designed. It's so easy to use. So, you know, that's a huge mega trend that we're going to see in the application space and the SaaS space, um, you know, moving forward. Uh, so I'd say those are two of the things that we're tracking really closely. And then just on the more, you know, blockchain side, blockchain, you know, has been around for a while. Everyone has been looking at different use, use cases to use. Again, I think we're kind of in the second or third inning of blockchain. People have experimented. They see what, what it can do. We're writing a report about distributed uh, blockchain with storage. Um, 
everyone's trying to figure out how can I use blockchain to intersect with my technology so it becomes the underlying platform because it is pretty cool. Um, no one just had a really good business re- reason to use it. <laughs> it was just a technology thing. So th- those are some of the things that we're looking at and are pretty excited about. Yeah, definitely a good list there, Ben. Uh, really an exciting conversation from somebody who's at the front lines of these emerging technologies. Once again, uh, Ben Book is the co-founder and CEO of GigaOM. That is G-I-G-A-O-M at gigaohm.com. You can check out a lot of the great research that they're doing. I checked out your website. I was fascinated by how, how thorough and how much breadth you have of information. Uh, ben, it was a real pleasure. Thanks for joining me on the podcast here this afternoon. All right, Simon. Thanks for having me. And once again, thanks for tuning in to this episode of our 7investing podcast. We are here to empower you to invest in your future. We are 7investing. A reminder that people on this program may hold positions in the companies that are mentioned. Buying and selling stock carries financial risk, which could include the loss of capital. The views in this program should not be taken as personalized advice. Before acting on any of the information provided, listeners are encouraged to consult a financial or tax professional.